Hello, everyone, and welcome to Vision of Zion. The date today is May the 12th, 2023. Hello, Sean. Morning, Craig. This morning, we're going to go over Sean's notes on the book of Isaiah chapter 9. Now, Sean, you promised me last time when we did chapter 8 a few days ago <laughs> that things were going to get better. So I've had a couple of comments that, boy, those chapters paint some dark pictures. So, But there's light on the horizon, I'm, under, I'm assuming. Yeah, here in this chapter, we're given the viewpoint of the righteous who have gathered as a servant has uh, suggested or as Yahweh of armies has suggested and this is encompassing about a six month window of time but they're standing in safety among uh, the rest of the righteous that can hear God's voice and they're looking out at the world and seeing this so they are in comfort and peace and they're beginning to understand why tribulation was necessary to bring more back into the fold and they're waiting with loving arms to accept more people in Okay. As they awaken. I'll read verse one, and then we'll talk about it. They will cease from gloom for her, her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made it glorious by the way of the sea, beyond Jordan, Galilee of the nations. To understand this verse more in depth, we need to understand Nepali and Zebulun. These two tribes went through great tribulation, but they overcame it. They were humbled and turned back to God. They were blessed and protected once they were humbled. Here Isaiah in this verse is saying to the righteous who have undergone testing will also be blessed as the tribes of Nepali and Zebulun were. Once they were humbled and turned their hearts and minds back to hear God's voice, they understand why God has done this. They feel peace and understand why others must go this, through this process to turn back to God. To me, I saw this occurring as many had gathered already in the inner valleys in safety, and uh, despite what others had earlier believed and kind of tortured, you know, ridiculed them over gathering. Um, they are now gathered and they're awaiting and preparing to receive others as they turn their hearts back. Okay. Thank you for that. That that really explains that verse well. Verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in the land of the shadow of death, on them the light has shined. Those that have undergone great darkness of tribulation during the invasion are humbled and see the light of Christ in his teachings. Through my experiences in life that I've overcome great challenges, I found that I am more capable of loving others and uh, accepting others in a much deeper way. So I myself know in my own mind why tribulation was necessary for me to undergo. Verse 3, you have multiplied the nation, you have increased their joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy in harvest, as men re rejoice when they divide the plunder. 
the joy the righteous who have gathered together are exuberant with joy an overwhelming joy that others have seen the light and turned their hearts back to Christ in this verse the exuberant joy of bringing others back to the fold is described as when men divide the plunder i know this is kind of a negative thing one positive way we could look at this is think of a pioneer family working hard to plant a crop and praying that the weather might be helpful in raising the crop then as they harvest the crop they rejoice that they are able to pay the baker and have more than enough to get through the winter and plant the next season in reality more of us can think of the flip side and we might think of uh, Butch Cassidy um, robbing the train and then making safely away from the sheriffs and everything. And they're now dividing up the coins and the loot that they had, and they're dancing with joy and, and being exuberant around. So the, the great exuberance is what they're trying to portray here. And unfortunately, most of us can see the negative side easier than we can see the positive side. Hmm. Verses 4 and 5, for the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as in the day of Midian. For all the armor of the armed men in the noisy battle and the garments rolled in blood will be, bur will be for burning fuel for the fire. Here God is wanting us to see there is a point in which we overtake the invaders that sought to take us into bondage like a slave. The battle to take back our land is not without calamity or great hardship and prayer. Deuteronomy 20, 1 through 9 is a wonderful example of a battle in which God is with his people. I will use the battle found in Judges 7 and 8. In this battle, Gideon went up against the Midianites, who had often oppressed the Israelites. God whittles down Gideon's army from 32,000 men through different stages to 300 men. These 300 men under Gideon's command, with God's direction, defeat 135 Midianites. Just astronomical odds. This made no sense in man's eyes, but God wanted them to know that he was the source of their power and not anyone else. In the scenes I was shown in my NDA as I walked with the Savior, I saw the battle take place on our nation from the king of Assyria's army. The ratio of men under the servant's direction versus the king of Assyria's alliance was nearly the same ratio of men as with Gideon's army. Our army was mostly made up of young men ages 12 to 17. We could think of them as the stripling warriors that Helaman led. This modern-day band of stripling warriors will include young men, as I saw, from the Lost Ten Tribes, and at a later time we'll do a, a more detailed podcast of these scenes that I saw in gathering and getting ready to take back this nation, because it's a very, very special thing to me, and to see how the strength of God builds within us, and we do, truly do become God's army and God's hand. And that's such a beautiful thing when he puts it together and it's sanctioned by his hand to bring back freedom for his people. All right. Verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there shall be no end. 
on David's throne and on his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from that time on, even forever. The zeal of Yahweh of armies will perform this. This is a very key verse in helping us understand who the servant is and the power of the servant. It will be through the zeal of Yahweh of armies that God's kingdom will be set up. This is part of the reason why I love the Dead Sea Scrolls so much. They have a slightly different twist, which helps us reveal who the servant is. Here we see the servant, Yahweh of armies, setting up the government that will be used when Christ arrives. Without establishing the original laws, as in heaven, we will not be able to organize ourselves or prepare ourselves to stand in Christ's presence. Righteous people will be drawn to him as he establishes kingdom for Christ to come and rule and reign in the millennium. Another important clue is given in this verse, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. This person who becomes a servant to prepare the way for Christ's return is born, meaning he doesn't descend from heaven and is not a resurrected person. So that helps us eliminate some other things there and I love these little hidden drops that we can put in the back of our mind to bring about the identity of the servant. Interesting. Verses 8 through 10, Yahweh sent a word into Jacob, and it falls on Israel. All the people will know pasture, including Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say in pride and in arrogance of heart, quote, the bricks have fallen, but we will build with cut stone. The sycamore fig trees have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place, close quote. Yahweh sent a word or warning to Jacob. Here Jacob symbolizes a type of people that are seeking to hear God's voice and cannot yet hear him clearly. Yahweh's words are also sent to Israel. Here again, Israel represents a type of people. Jacob's name was changed to Israel when he could clearly hear God's voice. So here we see it falls upon Israel, meaning symbolizes the Israel category of people who hear the words, act on the words that Yahweh says, versus the people that can't quite hear him yet of the category of Jacob. All the people will know pasture. The word pasture symbolizes a peaceful area in which one can have agency to choose. The opposition to the opposing word or opposition to pasture is a corral. In a corral, an animal is totally dependent upon others for food and water. One's agency is limited. And this verse, Yahweh, meaning Elohim or God is saying that he will announce to everyone a place of refuge for those that can hear him. Yet at this time, the prideful people will ignore his words and try to rebuild the things that the king of Assyria's army has torn down. This group of people have refused to believe that all they have built with their hands could be ruined. So they struggle and try to rebuild without hearing what God is saying. Okay. By the way, I just want to remind our listeners that the way we're doing this now is Sean's going to go through his notes, and then I'm going to ask some follow-up questions, and I'll be having some questions on some of these verses at the end. Verse Verses 9, 11 and 12, Therefore Yahweh will set up on high against him the adversaries of Rezin, and will stir up his enemies, the Syrians in front and the Philistines behind. 
they will devour Israel with open mouth. Rezin was the rightful leader of his people, but he had turned wicked and worshipped idols. God is saying he still has power over all of Rezin and the adversaries of Rezin. He will stir up the enemies against all the house of Israel. God will empower the enemies to overtake the once righteous people who have broken their covenants and humble them to turn them back towards God. All right, verse 13 of Isaiah chapter 9. Yet the people have not turned to him who struck them, neither have they sought Yahweh of armies. Sadly, even after all the tribulation of trial and trials that God has set up to turn the hearts of the prideful back to focus on him, there will still be those that refuse to listen to what Yahweh of armies, the servant, has said and done to provide refuge from the king of Syria's invasion. All right, let's read verses 14 through 16. Therefore Yahweh will cut off from Israel head and tail, palm branch and reed in one day. The elder and the honorable man is the head, and the prophet who teaches lies is the tail. For those who lead this people lead them astray, and those who are led by them are destroyed. The prideful people still refuse to turn their hearts around <clears throat> and listen to the man God has appointed here on earth to set up the kingdom of God for his son to return. So God at this time removes all the people who have led the people astray. This includes the prophet, the elder, the leaders of their communities, and all those who have followed those leaders without question. In my words from the things I was shown, many people from all different faiths have gathered to the inner valleys, as suggested by the servant God has appointed. We now have a division in the land. When I say this land also includes the country of Israel as well as America, there at this time many people that do not believe in the words this servant has said mock the servant. These people are totally relying upon the arm of flesh that mock him. They trust the words of their religious leaders and community leaders that have led them astray. These leaders can also not hear God speak within themselves. So we have the blind leading the blind. There will come a time, as I saw, when the general population of the people have also rejected the new scriptures that we will be talking about in later chapters here that have been revealed and brought forth the fullness of the gospel or the, the things that have been hidden from us, like in 2 Nephi 28, 22, 2 Nephi 28 and chapter 29. So in one day's time, God separates those that are mocking his servant and those that can hear his voice that have gathered with the servant. This will probably occur through a series of earthquakes like we have never witnessed before. And yet we've had other people that have had NDEs describe these earthquakes that happen over long, you know, I mean, many, many miles. Fault lines move over 800 miles long fault lines and things around the world in a matter really quickly. I've got some comments to go through on that after we're done reading the verses. And questions as well. Verse 17, Therefore the Lord will not spare their young men, neither will he have compassion on their fatherless and widows, for 
Everyone is profane and an evildoer. Every mouth speaks folly. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hands are stretched out still. God will have no mercy upon those that have turned away from the words his servant has said. They will continue to undergo tribulation. The beautiful part of all this is that his hands are still stretched out to receive those who have turned from their prideful ways and are truly seeking to hear his voice. This means that many people will yet be gathered into the inner valleys of protection the servant has set up for those that truly want to live and act as Christ would. Verses 18 and 19. Wickedness shall be set ablaze like a fire, and briars and thorns shall it consume. It shall ignite the jungle forests, and they shall billow upward in mushrooming clouds of smoke. At the wrath of Jehovah of hosts, the earth is scorched, and people are but fuel for the fire. Men will have no compassion for one another. At this time, when the king of Assyria's alliance is given power to invade the promised lands, the wicked are annihilated. Many of our great and powerful cities are bombed. The people who have not gathered will suffer horrifically. They will even fight among themselves for food and for shelter. Verse 20 and 21, or verses 20 21, they will snatch on the right, yet remain hungry. They will devour on the left, but not be satisfied. Men will eat the flesh of their own offspring. Manasseh will turn against Ephraim, and Ephraim against Manasseh, and both will combine against Judah. Yet for all this, his anger is not abated. His hand is upraised still. Fighting among the wicked during this invasion, once again, is beyond comprehension to most of us. I do not want to go into too much detail here for what I've seen, but I will say that the Savior has shown me and scenes people eating their own offspring to survive. Manasseh and Ephraim were brothers. Central and South America will fight against the United States. The anger of all these people then will be turned to Israel and God will allow them to continue to beat down his chosen people who have sinned against the greater light. Let's go to the next. Was that it? That was it. That's yeah. it. Okay. All right. So let me back up here, Sean, because you've raised some very interesting issues. I'd like to touch on some of them. Uh, when we read in verse 2, People who've walked in darkness have seen a great light. Uh, it made me think about when you said that uh, people would, the light of Christ would 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 uh, come upon them after being humbled. It made me think about, and I think I mentioned this before, but uh, the comment: "There's no atheists in foxholes." Right. When we're under pressure and we're in very stressful times, we sometimes are more reflective of a greater power and come to terms with there is a greater power and that only way to survive is to recognize that and to call upon that greater power. I've, and my brother, have studied um, people that were in POW camps in Vietnam and other prisoner of war camps. We've also 
I've, I love the story of the Beliski brothers in World War II. And all of these have a commonality in that they were under great oppression. And they reached out and tried to help others. And they thought of every verse in different times of the Bible, even though they didn't have a Bible. They would even share Bible verses on the bottom of their shoe and pass them back and forth until they could memorize passages. Um, as they got out and everything, and they had this light of Christ with them, their whole lives were changed, and they became great people. Many of these people that underwent these type of things went on to be very powerful leaders, and they did not have fear of being put down or ridiculed, and they only had this lighter hope of Christ, and they made amazing businesses and did really a lot of good for other people, so... There's a really short book that I had as a young man, I'll mention it again, <clears throat> called Seven Years in Hanoi by Larry Chesley. Seven years as a POW. And he describes a lot of what you just described, how men found their faith. They grasped in their far reaches of their memory for religious songs or principles or verses of scripture. Some people practiced playing the piano on fake keyboards and there was this hunger to 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 know the lord but also to develop them themselves in these extreme times now the other book i read was and and also the saddest part of his story was that uh his wife not knowing what happened to him she divorced and re remarried so he comes home and he's still alive and his wife has you know, found another spouse, and that must have been gut-wrenching. She waited and waited and then finally remarried, thinking he was dead. But there's another book I read also. Uh, George Will wrote a Newsweek op-ed or a book review. I guess it was a book review. This is years and years ago. And it was, it, I remember the title of the article was Not Your Basic Beach Book. And it was, instead of a light, fluffy book, you know, it was about a guy named Armando Valladares, uh, and the book is called Against All Hope, and it's about uh, when he was uh, put into the Cuban gulags under Castro, and it was like 27 years. It was a ridiculously long period of time. And again, the space struggles uh, and coming to terms with God. So sometimes these extreme situations do cause us to turn to God or turn to God more as our only hope. And clearly, it's an unfortunate way to come to terms, but we do see uh, people walking in darkness. Suddenly, the light bulb goes on. I've seen people um, finally catch on to the gospel or to be born again in another church or something or take on the light of Christ, as some churches say. But when they truly take this on and they see what Christ is all about and the atonement and everything, their whole demeanor changes, their whole countenance changes, everything about them changes, and they just devote their life. It's a, it's a beautiful thing to witness and to experience. Well, on the next verses, uh, or verse 3 of Isaiah 9, that part where it says they'll rejoice in the, in the joy of the harvest, I was just thinking, watching our farmer, our ranchers in northern Utah, trying to find a place for feed uh, and a place for dry land for their cattle to stand, and the losses there 
going to incur or worried about incurring. You know, a farmer doesn't, and a rancher, they don't get paid unless there's a successful harvest. They work, they work all summer long. They work all year long to bring a product to fruition. And, uh, I can only imagine the joy when after all that waiting and patience, it finally pays off. Uh, it, it's a great, I think it is a great uh, analogy to um, how we're, our joy will be at the end of this when it's all over and we're, we've made it through the, the tribulations. Yeah, it's hard to comprehend. I mean, I've seen glimpses of this. And, of course, at the end of my NDE, when I decided to go back, um, the, the the glory that I saw, and I call it a party, for lack of a better word, as we rejoice together and say, we made it, we made it, you know, and we're uh, realizing our eyes are opened and we realize all the friends around us that were dear friends in heaven and realize that the small pittance of friends that we now have is just a pinhead compared to the friends we had in the pre-existence and the rejoicing of this. I don't know how to describe it because it is more glorious than I've ever seen anything on earth of hugging each other and congratulating each other on making it through this time. I want to explore this a little bit, how how wonderful this is this this time of uh, at the end of it when we gather with the 10 tribes and i've had the impression that the reason it's so joyous is because they are friends or family that we then are allowed to recognize and you know when you talk about this last time i didn't want to point it out at the time but you you started getting emotional about yeah. it and i wanted to go to the journal account or autobiographical account by Alfred Douglas Young. I did put it in a book called Refiner's Fire, an autobiographical account of the visions, miracles, and trials of Mormon pioneer Alfred Douglas Young. And on page 86 of this book, uh, I quote from his autobiography. And here's what he says, because he saw the same thing, Sean. He's, and he'd, he'd already seen, he'd seen the celestial kingdom. He'd, he'd met the Savior. He took a tour of the heavens. And this is what he says now. He says, up to this time, nothing had been revealed to me in vision, had excited me, any had excited any special intensity of feeling or of fear, joy, or sorrow. Everything appeared so reasonable and just that I continued in a still quiet mood. What I am now about to describe did not appear to come so rapidly as to what I have related. My conductor said again to me, look, I looked as it appeared to me towards the northwest, and I saw a portion of the land of the ten tribes of Israel, who are yet to come forth from the north country. It appeared to me that they had gathered in a vast multitude on the shore of a great body of water. Before them and over the water I saw a personage in a pillar of light. It was made manifest to me that it was John the Revelator. I saw the waters under and around him heave up and roll away to the north, and the land come up and connected the land on which the ten tribes were with the land upon which I stood. I saw the multitude come onto the land on which I stood. And of course, we know that this is when they fall upon each other's necks and kiss each other. And he <laughs> goes on to say, the vision closed and it was not made known to me where the multitude went. I became excited at the sight and raised my hands toward heaven and glorified God. Everybody who has described this scene that I have read 
or or felt from is overcome with emotion about this this happy happy reunion we made it so yeah. i don't know i just i it was interesting when you talked about it last time i sensed you getting emotional and i thought about his uh, alfred douglas young's response to the same exact scene you know it's so special to me as you know i know in visions of glory uh, spencer talks about it and, I, and there's some others that i know of this small group entering into where the 10 tribes are and when john the revelator has announced our presence he's a translated being and works mainly with them as we know from the scriptures that he works with lost 10 tribes but he has kind of announced that we are coming and of course they've been waiting for thousands of years for us to return and to join with us and as they give us hugs and they kiss us on the cheek and they tell us how long it has been for them as they waited and yearned to meet us and then on the surface as we you know as we come into the gathering areas and they help us the women and the daughters and stuff teaching our wives things that we have lost and uh the men teaching us skills and ways to use the priesthood that we haven't used before and um then finally loading the gold to go back to uh new jerusalem and to build up this temple of new jerusalem and stuff um they every single one of them wants to fall upon our necks and kiss us and uh the love is you know like when i was in heaven you can't describe those hugs that you get in heaven i mean they are so much more pure than what we have here and so much more from the heart and enveloping you know i many nights as i pray i long for those embraces and those hugs to restore me and to help me renew my drive and my commitment to go on each day when i think about uh i think of instances where there's great joy and outbursts of joy probably the one that is most definable in the last i don't know 100 years was when the war ended after world war ii and the victory over europe parades that broke out people hugging and kissing and the the it was it was in it was happening in england and europe and it was happening in america the that must be a little bit similar to the joy we feel after this even more dark period is coming to an end and the light is shining forth. The joy of having overcome must be, and the recollection of these people, these people coming in that we recognize and know, it's, it's just got to be amazing. Uh, anytime we go through something tough, you, you see it on a much, much smaller scale. <clears throat> you know, right now we've got the NBA finals, uh, basketball finals going on, and these teams go through these these grueling playoffs, right? They play as a team. They have to play seven up to seven games for each um, bracket, and then at the end of it, there's great joy because of what they've had to suffer through to get to the end. It's a little, little tiny bit of that, um, but it's it's uh, whether we're seeing a a woman travail in birth and bring forth a beautiful child and the joy that we feel uh whether it's a uh a, a wayward child who has returned to Christ 
and we see them go through the flowering of the spirit after having been uh, in a dark place, like the prodigal son story. Uh, you know, the, this is this is going to be truly amazing. Uh, Sean, I'm, I like to talk about this Isaiah nine six and seven, and I want to preface this by saying the following things. Um, uh, I mentioned at the beginning of these podcasts when I was doing them alone. And I'm going to repeat it again now. I'm not so much interested in focusing on all of the regular, normal uh, prophecies and patterns that we hear about all the time, especially maybe in church, uh, because I don't want this to be completely repetitive. But I also don't want to ignore things that are right in front of us, meaning there are things that we just don't talk about in scripture that are right there in front of us because we don't hear them talked about. They're not worked into our lesson plans in church or in our Sunday school, in our seminaries, but nonetheless, they are still there in the scriptures and they, they, they should be dealt with. They should be looked at and examined. And that's what I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast. I want to get into these areas uh, to, to get a better understanding. Are they there? What do they mean? And fit it in. So um, this verse, Sean, uh, 9-6, this has been a verse that I've always heard attributed to Jesus Christ. Um, yeah. That he is wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Uh, and I don't think you said that he, he's not that person. But what you're saying is it's new, is that there's a, there's a groundwork being laid by the servant, Maybe some people think it's servants or people who follow the servant. Uh, you know, in our church, we're used to uh, a hierarchical structure, which uh, is the first presidency, the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. We see the word servant used in the singular form in Jacob chapter five, frankly, and it's not right. Jesus. And so, uh, I don't think we're uh, prepared for or recognize whether the word servant or Yahweh of armies is a particular person. Um, we tend to think of maybe the group of the apostles and the prophets. So I don't know if this is time to discuss any of that, but obviously there is uh, uh, there's Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, that we're going to be talking about. There's section 113, where Joseph is asked point blank, who's the who's the stem, root, and the rod of Jesse, that's, or you know, the branch that's in that verse. And he doesn't make any bones about it. He's identifying one or two people in those verses. So um, so you're, may, you're drawing a really unique uh, distinction between... Um, Jesus being the child born versus the child giving or setting up the government that the Savior, who is wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, is setting up. So I just want to, you know, point that out that this is not a normal uh, view of these verses. Well, I can see how many people have 
in my mind, made that mistake because here we are in this verse, and all of a sudden we have pop out and say that this is is Christ when the whole rest of the verses are talking about, you know, this time period before Christ comes. So it may, in a intellectual set of point, why would you all of a sudden bring up Christ when you're talking about all these other things? Um, this counselor, this servant, or Yahweh of armies who heads up God's armies is what that's saying, is a type of person that needs to be the precursor to um, open the way for the Savior to come. I mean, we'd like to think all in our minds that we're ready to see the Savior today one-on-one um, -on -one and uh, sit beside him or on his lap and tell him our troubles and open up to him. But the reality is, is we're not. We've got some clearing to do. And as I say it many times, in order to prepare myself, Heavenly Father takes me by my feet and shakes me upside down and see if there's anything I've forgotten in my pockets that I've left aside. Um, and I love this scenario of shaking me upside down and see if I've got anything left in my pockets. But we, you know, Moses's people, as long as they were in the desert, they were not ready to walk up on that mountain and see God face to face as he gave the commandments and stuff. They stayed behind. We've been invited by our prophet to prepare to meet the Savior face to face as we cross the veil and different things there in the temple. But how many of us see that or how many of us have crossed that? Um, there's just more preparation than what we can imagine to get ready and you know john the baptist who prepared the way for the savior to come was a great and wonderful man humble plight and uh, he had lots of the traits of the savior and yet he wasn't the savior as he prepared the way for the savior to come well there clearly needs to be preparation before the savior can come this has been this is probably the main theme of Vis vision of zion is that we are the ones, well, worker bees anyway, we're the ones who to collectively are to prepare the earth for his coming. There's a right. cleansing and there's a building. And Christ is going to come to a kingdom. And the kingdom is going to be prepared by inspired leadership. And we have an opportunity to, to participate. 3521 makes it pretty clear that the Gentiles who are converted to the gospel are going to assist remnant Israel in the rebuilding, for example, of the or the building of New Jerusalem. It's very right. clear that we have the opportunity to to assist. Um, so, which what then it, takes us back to Jacob five uh, verses, I think sixty four toward the end, in which the servant goes down one last time and gathers very few servants to help him prune the vineyard one last time. And so we have this, we need some kind of direction there at that point. And we have one person directing many, many. Actually, as we get into chapter 11, we're going to see we have uh, a break off with the branch, the root, and the stem and the branch coming out of the root, so to speak. But um, you can't lead everything that does without some counselors. I mean, President Nelson can't lead us without many counselors and many advisors to do his work and neither that's why heavenly father needs angels to help him we need good righteous people around us that would carry out the work as if we were there so what i'd like to do is 
uh, draw upon uh, additional insight in the scriptures that is very similar to this, and it will illustrate how um, we need to carefully understand the scriptures and be prayerful about what they mean. Listen to this one. This is uh, when I was reading my great-great-great-great-grandfather's journal about uh, the future of America. Let me tell you what he said. Uh, and then I'm going to show you the scriptures that he's referring to. He says, when in the body, he, the angel, showed me the remnants of Israel, of the seed of Lehi, scattered over the southern portions of North America. Oh, by the way, Sean, we were talking earlier, folks, about, Sean and I were talking about where are, you know, the Lamanites, the descendants of, of Lehi. And I was giving him my thoughts on where they might be. I forgot this part that he had seen, uh, Young had seen them scatter over the southern portions of North America. Uh, then he goes on to say, I saw many of my brothers and elders go forth among them to, and preach the gospel, and many were baptized. Now listen to this, and I'm going to show you this amazing find here, because I didn't see it until I read this autobiography. He says, I saw a great prophet raised up among the remnants, and he went forth with great power among them preaching the gospel. Many were converted and baptized, and great faith was exercised among them. When I had this vision, I had not seen the Book of Mormon. So he was a convert, but hadn't had a chance to read the Book of Mormon. He'd been converted by the preaching of the Mormon elders. And in the vision, it was not manifested that it was anywhere on record that such a prophet should be raised up among the American Indians. When I afterwards became acquainted with the Book of Mormon and knew the, the promises of Lehi to his son Joseph, and that such a prophet should be raised up from his loins in the latter days, the Spirit manifested to me that I saw the person in my vision and the fulfillment of the prophecy. Well, when I read this, I thought, I've never seen that in, you know, the blessings of Lehi, which is the second Nephi, uh, I think chapters two and three. I, I didn't remember seeing that there was a prophecy about a Lamanite prophet. But then I went and read the verses and he was right. So this is in second Nephi. Again, this is something I've never heard in a Sunday school lesson or from the pulpit, but here it is in the scriptures, and we're trying to bring light to some of the lesser-known parts of this to try and paint a more complete picture for you of the last days. So here's what he says. So Lehi is blessing his son, Joseph. Now, you might remember Joseph and Jacob, two of his sons, as I recall, they were both born in the wilderness uh, right. after they left Jerusalem. So here's what he He does talk about Joseph Smith and the work he will do. And it, uh, so that's why it was kind of lost on me. But listen to what he says, beginning in, this is Second Nephi chapter 3, starting with verse 22. And now behold, my son Joseph, after this manner did my father of old prophesy. Wherefore, because of this covenant, thou art blessed. For thy seed, meaning Joseph, son of Lehi's seed, shall not be destroyed. For they shall hearken unto the words of the book. And... There shall rise up one among them, one sorry, and there shall rise up one mighty among them, who shall do much good, both in word and in deed, being an instrument in the hands of God, with exceeding faith, to work mighty miracles, and do that thing which is great in the sight of God, under the bringing to pass much restoration, under the house of Israel, and under the seed of thy brethren. And and now, blessed art thou, Joseph. Behold, thou art little. Wherefore, hearken unto the words of thy brother Nephi, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so Joseph 
son of Lehi is being told that from your loins, you're going to from from your your posterity in your posterity is going to rise up this prophet that young saw in his vision but had never known about it because he hadn't seen the book of mormon yet and when he became familiar with the book of mormon he's like oh my gosh that's what i saw in my vision right which is kind of the thing that sean's doing in my opinion is sean is reflecting on his vision and he's looking for um evidences of what he has seen and experienced i want to fast forward real quick to third Nephi, just to show you this, because this is really important. The, the, the Lamanite conversion to the gospel is, the in my opinion, and you can correct me, Sean, but the way I read third Nephi 21, verse 1 and 2, is they are the first of the remnant of Israel, or we'll even call them the lost remnant, uh, to begin to receive the gospel. So basically, Jesus is telling the people in the land of Nephi, which is a mixture now of the seed of Lehi and the seed of Mulek, he says, I'm going to give you a sign about when these things spoken of by Isaiah are going to take place. And he says, I'll give you a sign. This is verse 2. When these things which I declare unto you which, which I, and which I shall declare unto you hereafter of myself and by the power of the Holy Ghost shall be given unto you the Father, shall be made out unto the Gentiles, that they may know concerning this people who are the remnant of the house of Jacob and concerning this, this my people who shall be scattered by them. So he says, when these things are known to them by the Father, because it will be wisdom that the Father will do it. And then it goes on to say, the Gentiles are going to dwindle in unbelief because of iniquity. And that's expected okay and it goes on to say that when that happens that's when the the work of the father is going to begin in verse seven and he's going to fulfill his covenant well what's the covenant it's the abrahamic covenant that through his loins all the earth would be blessed and there is as we see in isaiah it is saturated with the promise that the Lord is going to bring together Israel. We already have a piece of it in place when the Jews were permitted under Gentiles' rules, being brought on their shoulders, just like it said in the in the scriptures, back to their promised land. But there are remnants. And that when the Gentiles reject the fullness, well, who has the fullness of the gospel? Oh, yeah. Yeah, the people who joined the church since 1830, Right. In the Americas, the Gentiles is when you read about the word Gentiles, the Lord is using the word Gentile to either refer to Gentile nations or the Gentiles in in America, uh, because go read First Nephi, you know, verses chapter thirteen, and you'll see the Gentiles is anybody that's not Lehi and his family, these outsiders coming in. So. The point of it is, is when the Gentiles, if they reject, 3rd Nephi 16 says it's still conditional, but it, it's cer certainly clear that some of the Gentiles are going to reject it. So those who have had the gospel are going to go into apostasy. That's what mm -hmm. it's saying here, because they're the ones who have the gospel. And it says fullness of the gospel, so it's even narrower than all Gentile Christians. Those who have the fullness, well, the fullness was brought by Joseph Smith. Uh, through the restoration, that's when it began. So he goes on to say that um, that 
the remnant are going to wake up and the Lord's going to remember his covenant. That's everything about Isaiah is he sets it up the bad, what's going to what's going to go, what we're going to go through, and then he turns it around and says, But this is all for one purpose, because I'm going to gather all the remnants back. Sean, that's Jacob chapter five that you were right. alluding to, which is very clear. It's all about trying to maximize the goodness of the fruit, and then there's a great harvest when he re grafts the original branches into the original tree. That's the gathering. Okay, and so what we see here is that this is going to happen, and part of it is going to be this Lamanite, or, well, I say Lamanite, but Joseph's blood is in him, the son of Lehi, but all the Nephites were killed off, apparently. That's what the general picture is by Moroni. So somehow, through all of this, Joseph's blood survives, and from that arises this prophet, and so we wonder to ourselves, how are the Lamanites going to be converted? Because this is right here as a precursor to the work of the Father or the first step of the work of the Father is the remnants are going to become converted. And Second uh, Nephi chapter 3 says it's going to be through a Lamanite prophet. So we don't talk about this, but it's all there. Just look right. at it and see. It's plain on his face what's going to happen. And I'm so glad that uh, yeah. Alfred Douglas Young had a vision to point this out for me, to see this. You know, and part of my vision, I don't think we've actually talked about this, Craig, that I saw uh, this remnant of uh, Joseph and of Sam's posterity joining together and becoming as one, and they separated and went far, far west. And uh, I saw them as becoming like, the. I've got a whole list in my journal, but like um, the Nez Pierce and the Shoshone and others now, it's interesting, like the Shoshone, even after this brittle massacre that happened in Cache Valley, they still came and worked on the temple and joined the church even after this terrible massacre by the military and everything, and really wrongful things happening and yet they still thirsted for this light and thirsted to work on the temple and stuff um we will see this come about there are this remnants that i see arising out of this but they separated themselves as far away from this and when i read that verse about the, the descendants of joseph would not be destroyed it brought me such great joy because i had seen this but i couldn't find it anywhere in the scriptures until a couple of years ago Hmm. Well, that's why these scriptures become important, because as as uh, events on the earth evolve, some of these themes get broader sharp, into sharper focus, plus with study and breaking out of um, a certain mindset. This is all here in the scriptures hmm. for us to, to find and to ponder. Um, I loved in verses uh, 8 and 8 through 10, where you described the pasture is a peaceful area. Uh, that was such a beautiful thing, Sean. I, uh, it, it is the perfect uh, imagery of peace and the ability to, to, to act freely in righteousness because mm -hmm. only in righteousness are we truly free. If we sin with our freedom, we're in bondage to Satan. So this is, this is a beautiful, um, the corral beautiful versus verse. the open pasture too. That was a great analogy. Grazing. You know, I we have horses, and about a dozen horses, and it's been a terrible winter with them being in their stalls and the mud. It's just, you know, it breaks your heart, but what do you do? 
you can't let them, you know, run off <laughs> into the mountains. You've got to you've got to keep them corralled. These are trained horses that you ride with. So of course it's all dried up and it's wonderful now. But it's so fun, Sean, to take those horses and to put them into like a, a large paddock or arena after they've been cooped up for even a day. But in this case, they were cooped up for weeks with all this rain. And we let out my horse. His name is Tucker. We let him out. He's a he's a gelding, and we let him out into the the big pen where the mares are. Uh, and he was <laughs> kicking and, you know, just kicking up his heels and racing around. And I, we put him out there now, you know, every, probably do it every day, but don't always get to do it every day. But we put him out there because, uh, again, a corral is relatively small. Uh, to put him out there is just so fun to watch them. And all the horses will, when we finish uh, raising the, alfalfa or the grass for the for the summer and then we we put it in bales and we put it away but at the end of the season we let them out into these larger fields and they just go crazy they're running around you know you, you can just see the emotion uh so i just this this the pasture being let out to pasture is such a beautiful image for me because I watch these horses and the funnest time we have with the horses is watching them when they're let loose for a time. They really like it. They settle down pretty quickly, <laughs> but uh, that first initial burst is just really fun to watch. I used to help my uncle and grandfather do the recreation side of the ranch, the working cattle drive, fishing trips, out guns. But anyway, the young colts, we had a special pasture uh, on the ranch where the it was hills and there were cricks to jump and things and it was close to the house but the colts that were raised in the pasture where they had hills and cricks to jump over were so much different growing up than the ones that were raised in the corral and their abilities outside of this because they had this freedom and they had this opportunity to jump and try things that could not be done in a corral. They were far superior horses throughout the rest of their life because of the opportunities given to them in this pasture, which Heavenly Father gives us a pasture, you know, versus the corral. Well, I could talk analogously about horses and all of that for a <laughs> long time because there are a lot of analogies <laughs> That can be drawn from having farm animals. Uh, I love it. Let's keep going here. Uh, I'm going to skip over to this one day prophecy about being cut off in one day. I'd like to make uh, two comments about that, Sean. One is after Alma and Amulek have preached to the people in Ammonihah, or Ammonihah, however you want to say it. Uh, they all got to flip back to it. I lost my place because I was looking for that 31 verse. So let me just flip back to it. Did I write it down? I hope I did. Yeah, Alma 16. So after Alma and Amulek were preaching to the people in Ammonihah, uh, they were... Uh, um, they were, there was a beautiful city and they were very proud people. And they, they, they were so mad because basically I'm an Amal and Amulek said, if you don't repent, 
the judgments of God are going to come upon you. I don't recall if they said they'd be destroyed in one day, but whatever they said, they laughed at him and said, we're so strong. Man, this sounds like America. Just cockiness. Um, I hope we're losing some of that because the only protection is God ultimately. Seriously. Yeah. Um, yeah. Geographically, we are very lucky. Our position in the in the in on the globe, but we're also <laughs> the same thing that makes us geographically isolated is also what makes us uh, subject to invasion because we have so much uh, shoreline around our country. You know. Anyway, in fact, I think that the uh, Hopi call us like a turtle, which the turtle is Turtle Island. Turtle Island, right? Exactly. We're this you know kind of a roundish shaped country with a lot of exposure anyway uh but i digress so mm -hmm. chapter 16 uh we see that uh they have basically put people to death thrown women children men into the pit and their books and driven out and persecuted and almost killed alman amulek so let's go to verse 9 in chapter 16 and thus ended the 11th year of the judges and the lamanites having been driven out of the land and the people of Ammonihah were destroyed. Yea, every living soul of the Ammonahahites were was destroyed, and also their great city, which they said God could not destroy because of its greatness. But behold, in one day it was left desolate, and the carcasses were mangled by dogs and the wild beasts of the wilderness. Nevertheless, after many days, our dead bodies were heaped up upon the face of the earth, and they were covered with a shallow covering, and now so great was the scent thereof that the people did not go into the possessed land of Ammonihah for many years. And it was called the desolation of Nehors, for they were of the profession of Nehor who was slain, and their lands remained desolate. Um, one day, this one day thing is, is, is copied. And on the positive side, Sean, I'll, I won't look it up now, but I think it's the book of Zechariah one of the minor yeah. prophets in the Old Testament, they said that Israel would be converted in one day. <laughs> so we have this, again, this uh, uh, one day of destruction cut off and then one day restored. Now, I'm not sure if that's the day that the Savior appears on, you know, between the split Mount of Olives and shows himself and they go, oh my goodness, the light bulb goes on. But in one day, the nation uh, is converted. So, this one day thing is uh, powerful. Did you want to make any more comments about that? There's a few other times when Isaiah will talk about in one day. But as I saw it, um, when I was first shown the scenes of the massive earthquake that others have described, you know, you have this first precursor that shakes things up and everything, and they have a hard time restoring from like in visions of glory. I mean, uh, there's been others who've seen, I think Sarah Monet, I'm not as familiar with hers, but uh, many others have seen these two earthquakes that happen about a month apart. And when the Savior first showed me this scene and stuff, I was just like, oh, just right here. The, okay, just right here, this, you know, maybe 100 miles was affected. No, I kept going, no, Sean, you're not seeing. Look over here, look over here. And we, you know, and the one fault line was 800 miles long. And the way communications were disrupted, the way our travel was disrupted and everything, there was no way to communicate back to our leaders. There was no, we were cut off from their presence. We were on our own, so to speak. We were isolated in one day. 
uh, many had died that had not dedicated their homes and dedicated their properties unto God and building up the kingdom of God. And so in one day's time, everything had been changed. And uh, there was no more of what we had seen, you know, in the past or grown accustomed to and thinking that it'd be here forever. The Savior told the people that one stone would not be left upon another where the Temple of Solomon was constructed. And I don't know how long it took, but around AD 70, it, it occurred. And they still don't know exactly where the temple was. That's how complete the destruction has been on the Temple Mount that they call the Temple Mount. Uh, these are these are dramatic visual reminders and prophecies. The uh, pictures of the Nauvoo Temple when we left it and abandoned it, and they tried to use it for some other things, and the wind that came up and toppled it. I mean, I've seen the stones over there that are being unearthed and stuff. And I'm going, I can't even imagine the wind that would take to move this stone. I mean, it's just beyond my comprehension. I'm just in awe that, of course, God created the wind to destroy it so it wouldn't be used for other things. First, there was so, the uh, fire. The question of who right. started the fire, kind of irrelevant to our, our purposes. And then that tornado or wind came and, and leveled it. That's pretty dramatic. Yeah. I mean, the Kirtland Temple didn't get destroyed. It was used for bizarre things. I think it was used to hold cattle at one point when the saints left, and then it changed hands. But yeah, the Nauvoo Temple, to be completely destroyed like that. Oh, by the way, I'm just going to show you this. Uh, this is uh, a little piece of stone <laughs> uh, from the Nauvoo te- original Nauvoo Temple. I bought it online. I like, I want a piece of that temple. So when they were digging wow. it up around 2000, uh, they were breaking up uh, the pieces, and you can see the the flat edge where it was um, mo- milled, or whatever the right word is, chiseled. So yes, I'm a proud owner of a little tiny piece. This is like for other people the Berlin Wall. This is this is my little treasure. Is this piece of uh, the Nauvoo uh, temple Next, stone to the friends we visited in Nauvoo? We got to pulling the weeds back on a property there and found a stone from the temple. And I, it was just stunning to me because they've used it for yard decoration, but um, they're being unearthed by the semi loads and stacked in an area over there. And just a uh, special. <laughs> well, it serves as a good reminder to me on, on many levels. So um I think we're done. I don't want to go over the, the, the horrific last verse. You've already covered it. But uh, did you want to add anything else before we close out this uh, podcast on Isaiah chapter 9? I, I will say just a little bit more about the last verse because in my travels at one point, um, I was flying across with the savior of these scenes and everything and the the destruction the mushrooming clouds after the destruction of some of the large wicked cities was just beyond comprehension and we were still yet as went in there gathering up the few righteous from among the debris and among the things we were looking for um those that had not been able to escape that had truly had God on their minds and couldn't get out. And we were still saving people at that point and bringing them in. 
And so, uh, you know, I just can't say enough how he's always got his arms outstretched to bring you in ready with open arms. It's not too late to turn around. You know, it's amazing how uh, consistent the various accounts by members of our church have had about or became members of the church have had about the coming calamities. I mean, uh, I've read two, three accounts of the fountains of water shooting up in Salt Lake City. The most recent was in Pontius, excuse me, John Pontius's book, uh, where um, Spencer sees the water shooting up. But that's not the only time. It's it, this this uh, you know falling of the of the ground in Salt Lake uh, and the water that's down there. It, it's 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 happening, and it's an earthquake, obviously breaking up the uh the ground and people need to be aware of these uh i do i do just as an aside i mean for what it's worth i do find it very um interesting that uh right where the nsa built their big facility and i guess i'm sure a good part of it is underground right there because they they make a point this is before that was built or was being built i'm not sure the status of it uh Right where that is built or being built, you know, Bluffdale, that's that's how, well, the water goes all the way to Cedar City, if you read some accounts. Um, right. but, but what happens in the city, the destruction, the actual falling by, it sounds like it's 100 feet or hundreds of feet that the ground drops right there. It's just uh, uncanny, I guess is the word. Um, I hope that that agency is doing righteous things because for some reason what people are seeing there it's not good right uh thinking about that water um real quickly i was in duchene one time and i've had throughout my life people just open up and tell me about different stories from the three fights to other things well this fellow was a driller and he was to relieve the rock pressure in park city area in deep in a mine there and so they were drilling and they were burning up bits like crazy trying to go through some quartz and stuff and they were just struggling inch by inch each day and but they wanted to relieve some water pressure that was back there when they finally hit it this they had no idea. It was like over 3,000 pounds pressure coming out, and it ran, and it ran, and it ran so long and so much. Um, they wondered where it was going and where it was disappearing back into, so they put a dye that they could trace into it, you know, that you wouldn't see or anything, but they traced it clear into Nephi underground and further, and they just gave up at Nephi point from Park City area, but the pressure that was there was just astounding. I heard a story of uh, drilling for water aquifers in in Nevada. You know, Nevada, it's the Great Basin. It's where there was a big under, you know, big ocean until the Sierras rose up. And then that cut off the ocean. It dried up. And then the Sierras are so high that it captures all the moisture. That's why Nevada is so dry. Uh, But anyway, uh, they dropped somewhere. I don't remember where. They dropped dye in to, to trace it. They couldn't, they couldn't trace it. It was so much water, they couldn't, there was no place that they could follow it that would tell them where the water was going. We have a lot of water in this area, just subterranean. Um, yeah. And 
no surprise, right? The Lord said he'd make the desert blossom as the rose. There's right. enough water uh, uh, to assist people when they seek refuge in the places the Lord wants us to go. We just need to be prayerful, ask for protection, divine protection over our homes, over the places we live. And uh, I guess this is one thing I, I did want to cover in closing. This is an important point. Um, I'm assuming that I'm going to just say it this way, Sean, for my benefit, for our listeners, the servant, whether it's a person or uh, a governing body of persons, uh, I'm assuming that the call, which some people call this, you know, when you're said, okay, it's time to gather, it's going to be, um, it's not going to be a secret. It's going to be a clear call, I'm hoping, uh, when it's time. So I'm asking you, is do you see it being a clear message being sent or is it word of mouth? You know, how is this, uh, how are people going to know that have been prepared and are waiting for the leadership that's needed? Uh, how, how do we know? It will be a clear call and the whole world will hear it. Um, I, I know that it kind of goes out to a small group at first, you know, like a small gathering, and then it's like televised, and they're showing this man on TV rising up and saying, you know, and he's, a, you know, you would never suspect that he would be the servant, you know, never suspect that he was a man of God because he didn't come from all the traditional things and traditional stuff. And so if you had not been praying and had not been seeking the signs and the things of the time and truly seeking to be a follower of God, you would not see these signs and you would discredit it and go, oh, he's such an unbecoming guy. He's so, you know, he's not handsome. He's not like wealthy. He's not profound. And so you discredit him and you they think, well, you know, I've got to stay here with my business. I've got to stay here with my home. I've got to stay here with all the things that I built of my hands because I've done this with my hands myself. I've, you know, I've done it without God in my life and, and I've got to hold on to all these treasures. I can't give up all these things that I built for to go follow this unbecoming man and everything. And so they ignore it. But um, but the others that have been waiting and reading and listening to these things and praying to know it will be like a light bulb and it will be like a bright light behind him and a magnet, if you will, be to the words and an answer to their prayers and their soul, a warming in their heart. So my, my comment in closing is that one of the prophecies I read, and this is where I think I, I read it. I haven't re- uncovered it for a long time, but I read it mm, 30 years ago. It was, uh, and so you can, you can challenge the source. I'll just tell you what motivated me. That's all I can tell you. So there's an account about one of the visions of John Taylor recorded by the Lunt family in Cedar City. That's what it read when I found this prophecy. And it wasn't recorded for many years after his death, maybe even the 1950s. So consider all those points. But at any rate, what is said is that um, they watched the saints gather in a place in the shape of a horseshoe of cities. And so, you know, that led me on a quest for a long time to figure out, you know, where are these, where's this horseshoe of cities? And 
whether I got it right or got it wrong, it led me to, you know, move. Eventually, many years later, finally got the impression where I should live and go. And and I'm not saying this was one of the cities, but I think and I hope I'm in a place where, you know, that area is going to be more protected than in other areas. So there's a big motivation and and prophecy does motivate me to do things. It should motivate everybody. All of you right. listeners should be motivated uh, to your own uh, calling. Uh, and I can't understand anybody not taking food storage seriously. I just can't understand it. People eating their young because they don't have any food. Invert in this last verse of Isaiah 9, verses 20 and 20. Or 20. Do you want to be that person who's so hungry? that you'd sacrifice your children to get right. a meal. I mean, that's dramatic. And to me, that was the hardest scene of all the things that I saw. And that's why I have such a hard time describing it because I just can't comprehend the level of a person. And of course I've said the daughter party and I'm like, well, couldn't we have scraped out the bark of the trees where there's and eaten the sugars between the bark? Couldn't we have done something else because it's just so low. Yeah. And lots of people describe the starvation scenarios that can occur. And we're encouraged to store food and to have enough to, and to share with others. Um, but I'm afraid that the number of people that are taking this commandment seriously are few. And there's not very much to go around, ultimately. So these, you know, these prophecies motivate me to you know, to guide my life on what I should be working on. And I don't want to say, you know, I want to make sure the listeners out there know, um, if you will be given revelation or whatever, not everybody will gather into these valleys. Some are appointed to stay out and help others come in and wait till the very last minute. Um, they're seen warehouses or quantities people have put up all many different places and they were inspired by god to do this and they truly are um i i've have been seen in the vision of rescue missions where we are bringing in the last few at the end and they we are around a campfire and there's so many tears and we're just going what's happened you know what's the news have you heard more about my family my family is so-and-so do you know where they're gathered <laughs> and we're sharing stories of hope and faith, and they're sharing stories of miraculous things that happened while they were some of the last ones out bringing in stragglers and things and bringing them all in. And um, we're so special to see these people that did what their mission asked them to, what God asked them to do for these days against what everybody else saw, and to not criticize anyone for not following the bunch or the norm if if you're getting revelation that you need to do this follow it yes and it will be soothing and comforting to your heart despite what the world says to you i remember stories about those brave on both sides the pioneers who in their extremity were crossing over to get to utah you know coming across those bodies of water they were too weak to cross and men from uh, 
among the saints in Utah were sent or volunteered to go and they carried those people across those frigid waters all day long. And some of them died from the exposure who were doing the carrying. And uh, when jo when Brigham heard about it, it says he wept like a child at the sacrifice that those men made to carry those people across the river. I don't remember which river it was, um, but I also remember reading a story where one of the men who did it survived, but he had pains in his feet and his legs his whole entire life after that event. So yeah, we will be called upon everyone with their own mission. Uh, down in Southern Utah, there's this, uh, what's it called? Let me think of the name. That ferry crossing, uh, Lee's Crossing. Lee's yeah, ferry, Lee's, Lee's ferry. ferry. And uh, there, there's a man that I met who's a descendant of the Johnson family who ran that ferry. They were called to go down. Now, if you know, the hottest place in in the southwest is where the water flows because it's the lowest place, right? right. Elevation helps you with temperature, but if you're down on the river, it's warm and hot. His family went down there, and this guy was called. I, I, I don't want to say his name because I'm not sure of his first name. I'm not positive, but it was last name was definitely Johnson. Had a bunch of kids, lived at the little house there raised their food and crops on on the soil on the banks of the colorado ferrying people back and forth and the church owned the ferry and he kept a log you know 25 cents to cross bring someone across the river because it was the one spot on the colorado that was relatively calm and so they could bring people across on a on a ferry i think they had a rope going across anyway the point of it is he was down there for 20 something years because that I was think. his job Joe Hill Johnson, I think, was that man, and he wrote many of the hymns in the church books, and mm. I have a dear friend who's a descendant of him, and when I look at all the things that he accomplished in his lifetime and stuff, um, it's humbling to think, how can I be the same kind of man or the same caliber of man as they are? And of course, you know, you and I, we've found out, uh, both come from descendants of the Muddy Mission, and yes. when I read the journals of the muddy mission and it being too hot to stay in the dugout and sleeping on the roofs because of the scorpions and grandmothers or grandmothers, you know, not baking bread on the days when their fevers were too high from the malaria, when they were shaking too bad because they wanted the bread to rise. And yet I look at the, what they produced in like one year's time with only what you could put in a buckboard for tools to do this. And I often look at, my ancestors there, especially where I lived on the home that they built in or the land they put in in 1905 and the things they did. And I go, man, how am I ever going to fill those shoes? They were such great people and they were so dedicated. How can I possibly emulate all the things that they have done for me? And how, you know, how can I pay it back for what they've set up for me? I believe that in each one of us who has ascended from these noble people scratching in the dirt to survive, there are remnant <laughs> DNA, spiritual DNA <laughs> that is there. And we need to 
tap into that because we have come from amazing people. I mean, a nation of immigrants we are, have been, and will continue to be. And the sacrifices people made, and especially those, yeah, those members of the church, those pioneers who we are familiar with, who kept histories, and we can look back and see what they did. Uh, there's, there's a remnant there. And yeah. that remnant is going to be called upon, I believe. Um, and we're going to have to respond. We're going to yeah. be given an opportunity to respond and show that their sacrifices were worth it. But yeah. they're looking to us. That's what Malachi talks about. The, the promises made to the fathers um, will this, the, the children will recognize them and their hearts will turn to their fathers. That's the whole covenant of Israel. The whole thing wrapped up into one big covenant is God promised righteous men and women that they would bless their posterity. And although they're going to go through a lot of trials and tribulations, the Lord's going to remember them because of the righteous acts of their forebears. And if we don't turn our hearts, <laughs> what does it say? The earth will be utterly burned. There's no point. Right. But we will turn. We are turning. We usually talk about it only in terms of temple work. I believe that it's much broader than just temple work. Temple work is maybe the pinnacle. I'll give you that because we're doing the work they couldn't do for themselves without the restoration of the keys. Right. But there are a lot of things that we are going to be it's... called upon to do because through our, uh, through us, the promises made to our ancestors will be fulfilled. Several years ago, I was in a special priesthood meeting with Craig Christensen, and we were talking about home teaching and ministering program. And uh, he says, you know, I think I had to be elders corn president like five times. He says, evidently, I didn't get it right the first time. And he actually had an apostle come down and at the time and serve with him. And, um, home teaching or ministry service or whatever was not just going out and giving the lesson and saying hi and so forth. It, that's kind of like checking off the boxes. It was like, how is your family adapting with the economic impacts today? How has this thing in college or this news in college affected your daughter or something? It was this more intimate knowledge and that's what i keep saying about temple work to everybody it's not just checking off the box by going and do work for your ancestor it's getting to know them and to know their hardships and how they overcame these hardships and that's what they want us to know is that i overcame and yeah i had some hard times i made mistakes but i did overcome so on the list of my maybe top 10 spiritual motivational or life-changing events that happened in my life if i had to say what are the top 10 uh in the top two or three would be the uh, the autobiography of alfred douglas young because when i read that account of what he went through and his out-of-body experience and just the spirit that i that, that descended upon me when i read it i knew it was true um has had a life-changing impact on my life uh, like it just set in stone certain aspects of my faith that I can never retract, will never retract. It's like erased any any doubt. And for those who haven't been through that experience, hey, I understand. 
but I don't have any excuse because there's just things he said in there that the spirit burned into my soul. And I'm so glad he wrote that little journal. He wrote it the last year of his life. I keep saying journal, but it's an autobiography because it wasn't a day-to-day. It was a summary of his life a year before or so before he died. But yeah, the muddy river, yeah. um, the, all those experiences that he went through. Um, you ought to it had list life-changing. That. You ought to list that on the end of our podcast so that people can find that on Amazon. And Okay. You know, even Good point. You know, like my experience, with my wife and I wrote called True Connection and how we went through ups and downs and everything else and we came back and but we had to know the good from the bad and and I'm so grateful for my experiences in those rises and falls of my spirituality and how it's made me more solid than I ever have been in my life. The only reason I wrote the book was hoping that someone else would read it and feel the connection and a conviction that I felt. And that was the whole motivation for doing that, as I'm sure uh, with your story and the repentance process and all the things you've learned, it's a similar a similar thing, similar desire to share and give hope to people. Exactly. I will put that in on, I keep saying one last thing, but I will, I will close with this. I promise. I have been working on a website called visionofzion.org. And it, a lot of it is undeveloped, but what I did do is I did post all of Sean White's notes from these book of Isaiah podcasts and they're in order of the chapters so whereas we've gone out of order and yeah. you're jumping back and forth you can go to the podcast page under podcast series isaiah explained and you can find not only a sequential order by chapter to what we've done so far but you'll also be able to pull up the actual notes that uh, Sean has prepared for each chapter and you can review them and I will in the show notes I'll provide links to these books yeah. so if anybody's interested in learning more they can Yeah. alright everybody thank you Craig thank you this has been a little longer probably than normal but that's okay Yeah. <laughs> thank you for listening to Vision of Zion we'll talk to you next time sounds good bye 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 now